Welcome to VB Engage episode 48. My name is Stuart Rogers and I'm with VentureBeat and as usual I am joined by the author of Digital Sense, the marketing technology genius that is Travis Wright. Travis, how are you doing today? I am doing excellent, good sir. Thank you, as always. We're getting so close to 50. I mean, this is oh, amazing. Oh, well, we've got something special coming up for 50, haven't we? We've clearly put out 47 amazing, legendary podcasts already. Last week, we had John Rampton on the show. This week, we have Everett Taylor. That's a fascinating interview. You folks are going to love that. We talk about him. He is He's not even 30 yet. He's the CMO of Skirt. I think about 10 years ago, he was homeless, and he has just been on this amazing journey. He actually helped uh, the Growth Hacker community set up growthhacker.com. Amazing guy. Really love chatting with him. Next week, we have John Miller. He was one of the founders of Marketo, and now he runs a company called Engageo. Episode 50 is completely magical. Uh, we have Noah Kagan. Noah Kagan, I believe, was uh, employee number 30 at Facebook, got fired, and lost all of his stock. All of his contemporaries are now billionaires. He decided he did not want to be a victim, and uh, he decided to be a victor, and he's been running Sumo. It was AppSumo. Actually, like the day before we chatted with him, he had just bought Sumo.com. So love that conversation with Noah. He is an amazing, amazing fellow. In addition to all of that, we are going to be giving away our first competition prize ever in the history of VB Engage. So keep your ears open for episode 50 because we're going to be giving away an amazing, amazing prize. So we've got some awesome stuff coming up. But before we get to all of that, Travis, we have to talk about this week's news. Let's do um, it. And then we can get into this conversation with Everett, right? Let's do it. That sounds great. There's a new study out this week. I didn't write it. Peggy Ann Saltz wrote it. Peggy Ann Saltz is an amazing uh, mobile analyst. She works for Mobile Groove. She has published her study on VB Insight, which is the research arm of VentureBeat. It's really, really interesting. It's called App Store Optimization, a Practitioner's Guide to ASO. Um, ASO is how you basically get your app found on the app stores, right? If you launch an app right now, it's really difficult, isn't it, Travis? I mean, there are something like 2,300 apps launched every single day. Now, the factual thing is, is that about 2,000 of those apps are just Autobot generated apps um, out in sort of, you know, Eastern Europe and uh, Asia and elsewhere. Yeah. And when um, you say Autobot, you know, that is not a, the Transformers. But you're right. Yeah, that is I, app store optimization. It's like SEO for your app, right? How, how do you get found? Right. Despite the fact that 2,000 or 2,300 apps are just, you know, clone apps that are created by bots in the hope that they can generate some uh, advertising revenue and all that sort of stuff, it still means that when you put your app out there, there are maybe, you know, you and 299 other legitimate competitors. How do you get your app found? And what Peggy has done, she basically did a survey of 500 ASO users, App Store Optimization users. She also did interviews of 35 ASO professionals, people who do this stuff day in, day out, to really get into the crux of how do you do this stuff? And one of the things that she found was that Video has just become incredibly important to apps. Um, it's actually increasing conversions uh, by 60%. Can you believe that? Well, I can believe that, you know, because, you know, video in all ad formats, I've noticed, is has been killing it. I mean, so I have an agency in Kansas City, 
And we do a lot of social advertising and, and search management for different clients. And Facebook ads, particularly the video, the cost per impression and the cost per click on videos is so much different than the cost of a regular, you know, standard image. The ROI is, is much, much higher. And so that doesn't surprise me that the value of video would be much higher on, you know, if you have a great video, when somebody goes to look for your app, and if you have a great video that's a demo that's sort of walking you through that, or if you're actually using mobile advertising, uh, you know, piggybacking on to other ad networks and showcasing video there, that's how people are finding you. So I, it would make sense to me that those video campaigns are, are doing great to cut down on what on wasted efforts and ad spend. I mean, it's yeah, and we've all heard of Robio, the people behind Angry Birds um, and all of those Angry Birds games. There are a lot of them I can testify about. I play a lot. But uh, Anne Vu, who is the user acquisition lead at Rovio, she said that basically the video trailer for Angry Birds 2 in the App Store improved conversion by 60%, mm. cut their CPI in half, and the users from the video ad networks had about a 20% higher retention rate on average than any of the other ad networks. So people that responded to video actually stuck with the game for longer. Now, that's impressive. So if you you know have an app and you don't have a great video that sort of sells your app, then you are not going to do as well as those that do. It's not just making an epic app. You really need to think about how to promote that to the right targeted audience, creating a, a nice video that is compelling. Did they say in this study, like, what length of video was most preferable for those video game ads and trailers? Video is just like one small part of it. It allows you to create a really comprehensive strategy around how to optimize your app store presence across like the entire app marketing funnel. So basically it's like distinguishing the myths from the industry best practices in every single area and goes into lots of case studies around keywords and text and screenshots and you know, all of the things that you can optimize around how your app is presented on both the you know Google Play and Apple um, app stores. Pretty comprehensive guide and uh, you know obviously Peggy Ann really knows her stuff. In addition to that, having 35 experts give you the lowdown on it all in one report is pretty impressive. If you are a app developer or marketer or publisher and you want to know how to optimize for the App Store marketplace today, uh, you're going to want to check out that ASL playbook for sure. The other thing I noticed this week, I picked this up as an exclusive actually, really, really interesting data. Nativo, which is a company that is involved in, in native advertising. So obviously they've got an interest in these figures, right? I mean, they've got a They've got a distinct interest in these figures. But what's uh, interesting for me is whenever I look at a study from a company that has an interest in the result, I look at the sample size. And they took in data from over 600 brands. So we're talking about millions of points of data here. So it's statistically significant whichever way you look at it. Um, and that's important when I'm, I'm picking up uh, reports and studies from vendors. And what they noticed is that over the last three years, this is a three-year-long study, Native ad spend has increased by 600%. But this is the first study, Travis, where they've actually broken it down by vertical so that you've actually got benchmarks by vertical, you know, in things like automotive and travel and finance and insurance and entertainment and food and beverage and so on and so forth. Pretty interesting stuff, right? 
Yeah, it is. And to see that broken down and, and the, the early adopters and the fast movers to see how they, uh, the results they got versus the ones that waited a little bit and, and actually were helped defining best practices within the space. And just to clarify, when we're talking about native ads, you know, we're talking about, you know, native advertising and sponsored content. And this report here also includes influencer marketing tactics as well. Obviously, because it's from Nativo, the focus is on Nativo's native ads and, and native video formats and those kinds of things. But nevertheless, it's really interesting to note that the people who got into it first, the fast adopters, if you like, which is um, you know automotive, B2B tech, B2C tech, entertainment and, and finance and insurance, have actually been reducing their budgets and pulling back and bailing a bit. They started out strong and then they fell off, whereas the... You know, business, CPG, travel, food and drink and health and fitness categories have all been increasing in that same time. And that's interesting to me. It kind of shows in my mind that when you're building your marketing on other people's platforms, early mover advantage is not necessarily a good thing because the best practices haven't actually been nailed down by that point. You're the guinea pig, right? So you're you're trying to work out how to make this stuff work. And therefore, there's a really good chance that it won't work for you. And so you pull budget back because it's not working. Whereas the, the people that come in later, they're reading all of the case studies and blog posts and everything else, picking up the best practices and getting the results. That's kind of an interesting uh, proposition, right? Eh? Sometimes it's great to be you know, a first mover. And sometimes it's better to be you know, a late adopter. For example... Elon Musk, he's launching that Neuralink startup to connect your brain to the computer. I don't know that I would want to be on the first gen. Maybe, <laughs> maybe third gen. Wait until they get it all figured out. I'm, I want all the bugs. I mean, that's why, you know, in some, in some cases, you know, it is much better to, uh, to, to wait a little bit. And so now, you know, all the best cases, all of the, uh, the, the best use cases, the knowledge of, of how to do influencer marketing and to do native advertising is, is becoming more clear. The strategies are, are more laid out. There's been examples of companies who've done it well examples of companies who've done it poorly. There's actually this graph that I like to share on different presentations that I do that shows like how expensive sponsored posts are on different websites, right? For example, Time Magazine or Time.com, if you want to get a post on Time, that's going to cost you $200,000. Plus, when you factor in that Google has rules against sponsored content having follow links. So every one of those articles have no follow links. So you're not getting any SEO juice out of that article. And you know that $200,000 can be spent much better in other places. I know, Stuart, that a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned in the news around micro-influencers. It's actually a better process to divide that ad spend up place it on many different, maybe smaller sites, and engage some of those micro-influencers over time, right? Micro-publishers, if you want to call them that, might be a better way forward than going for the uh, the big publishers. I mean, obviously, the big publishers are, are there, and they're available for you know the bigger brands. There's still a huge amount of benefit that a big brand can get from having native advertising on a big publication. Absolutely guaranteed. There's so many great benefits to that. But for the rest of us, the smaller organizations, you know, maybe think about uh, micro-publishers in the same way that you might do with micro-influencers. Obviously, the more you add, the more of your time you have to put into managing all those relationships. But 
you know, there's a payoff there and you've got to keep the balance. One final thing on that. I mean, that's one way that I think is, is it's a very positive way to take that sponsored content. So if you have a great article on time that you spent $200,000 on, well, then take that article and then advertise that article on like Facebook ads targeting, you know, the prospects that you want to see that content, right? That's one way that ad spend really can empower that sponsored content because sponsored content by itself is like a tree in the forest. It, when it falls, does it make a sound? Did anybody hear it, right? Now, if you aren't actually taking that sponsored content and then amplifying it to the right targeted audiences so they can see it, then you know you aren't getting the full punch from that particular piece of content. So I would just say if you are doing native content, you are placing content in certain places, don't be afraid to put some ad spend behind either boosting the post or actually doing uh, a separate ad campaign where you are targeting your account-based targets with that content so they can actually see it and help drive them down the funnel. I think that's important. That's very cool. Um, Also, just from a scientific standpoint, if a tree does fall in the forest and nobody hears it, it did not make a sound. But we don't have time for me to explain the uh, science behind that right now. Let's talk a little bit more about ad spend. Okay. And we can't go another week without mentioning an artificially intelligent marketing technology. Um, So Bidalgo has launched its AI agent to help app marketers automate the entire process of buying advertising. And, you know, I don't know about you, Travis, but if you've ever tried buying advertising, especially for app marketing purposes, it is a really complicated thing to get right. And Bidalgo are saying that AI will deliver a better return on ad spend than any human possibly could. It's going to do all of that high-waste, menial task stuff that would take ages and ages for you to actually perfect as a human being, right? It, it's going to work it all out. It's going to ask a million questions, figure out what the uh, the right answers are, and do it all in seconds. Um, you know, I think this kind of stuff is absolutely fascinating. This is the application of AI in marketing that I think is, you know, the best use of, of AI. You know, this kind of difficult, complicated task that you just want to get rid of so that you can do more creative stuff, right? Yeah, I've actually helped manage some some mobile app marketing campaigns. And, you know, when I went through the whole roadmap from soup to nuts, from A to Z on this thing, there was like 170 different steps in different things that needed to be accomplished to, to really market this effectively and different things need to be considered, different things that had to happen in the app to be able to get you to a certain point. And then when you want to start doing, you know, mobile advertising, there's so many different ad networks out there. You know, they all have their own different games or apps that they're located in, right? Not every app network is in every app and every app chooses a couple that they're going to be part of. And I'm all for, if you can take AI and actually help app marketers automate the whole process of buying advertising, not only on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, but also these other platforms and also expanding and growing to be able to not only upload ads, but also be able to optimize those ads performance to real-time bid management and budget allocation. That's missing right now. And here we are, for the most part, 10 years in on smartphones, and this finally arrives. This is definitely needed. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever I read stories like this, I always like to you know, hear about uh, people that have been using it and director of user acquisition at Product Madness has been using Bidalgo's AI platform, Patrick Witham. He said that it was able to increase their seven-day return on ad spend by 15% in just four weeks. 
If you know how much money that is, that's significant. I mean, that is pretty impressive. Vidalgo have done this uh, without raising any outside money at this point. They've got 70 employees. Uh, they're currently managing about $200 million in annual ad spend for their clients. You know, I think this is the start of something really interesting. Uh, I'm sure Bidalgo are going to have an awful lot of competitors out there in this space doing this stuff. You know, it's going to be a competition to see who has the best algorithms in the end, isn't it? It is. And it also goes to show that we're running out of domain names and brand names. Bidalgo. That's just completely <laughs> created out of thin air. They just, let's put some letters together. It's to bid algorithm. I mean, it's really not that difficult, Travis. <laughs> But I hear you on uh, on names. What we really need is we need we need an AI that creates new business names. Yes. But before we get to that wonderful vision of the future, how about we look at another wonderful vision of the future and get the lowdown from one of the most impressive and interesting uh, entrepreneurs out there right now, Everett Taylor. How about it? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a great show for us today. We have a phenomenal interview. We have Everett Taylor with us today, and Everett is the current CMO of Skirt, which is a mobility company that delivers cars on demand, right? So it's kind of like Uber for car rentals. Very cool. He's also founded his own company, Millisense, where he is the, it's a marketing firm where he's the CEO. He's got a company, Growth Pup, that's a social media software growth company, and he also saw the founding team of Growth Hackers. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm VB Engage welcome to Mr. Everett Taylor. Welcome to the show, good sir. Hey, thank you, guys. I'm really excited to, to finally get this interview done. Listeners, you won't know this, but we have had technical issue after technical issue when it comes to uh, interviewing Mr. Everett Taylor. Uh, I think this might be third or fourth time. Uh, let's say it's, I think it's first, the fourth time. Fourth time, is it? We're going to rename that phrase. That When they say it's third time is a charm, we're going to make it fourth time is a charm. Um, yeah, it's really great to have you finally on. Uh, listen, you've been involved in so many great startups. You know, I'm 147 years old, and you make me feel really bad because uh, you're, what, uh, 27, 28? 27. 27. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a little bit sickening, frankly, uh, Everett. Um, <laughs> don't, don't you, you will have found already some trends, some secrets, some things that uh, you know work each time. You know, give us a little bit of flavor and give the listeners a bit of flavor of, of what you've discovered that that works, especially from the point of view of, you know, engagement and community, which are two really big themes for us here at VB Engage. I think the number one nugget that I've learned, especially during my time at Skirt and other companies, is that empathy towards customers leads to accelerated growth. Empathy towards users leads to accelerated growth because that affects you building better marketing strategies, custom market market strategies that helps you build better products and better processes in place to serve your customers. And that has been like the number one thing that I've lived by. Um, number two is being able to balance the ability to be emotionally intelligent while still being data and impact driven. You know, a lot of people talk about growth marketing and they, they focus so much on the data aspect of it and the metrics. But the data and the metrics are supposed to help you discover more from a qualitative aspect about your users, their behavioral patterns, what makes them tick, what drives them to convert. And a lot of people, they use data as that, that sole source to figure things out when it comes to growth and marketing, when it only plays one part of the story. It's supposed to be used as that lever for creativity 
for you to really figure out what makes a user tick. Great. That was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you specifically in, in doing you know, research to, to chat with you is, is about your experience with emotional intelligence and, and how that has impacted you in your career. Because you just mentioned it, you talk about it, the empathy. And if you empathize with your customers and you get inside their brain and you, you figure out how to solve their problem creatively, they're going to want to do business with you. Now, what were some key aspects of your, you know, early days? I mean, you're still in your early days, right? You're 27, but right. in your earlier, yeah. early days, like what was that catalyst to give you that emotional intelligence? Because a lot of people don't have that. There was two things. I took my first marketing job when I was 14 years old and I was working for a company called Eastern National, which serves our national. It's funny because national parks are in the news right now, but they, they serve the gift shops and bookstores of the national parks. And at the time when I was 14 years old, I grew up in a neighborhood that was primarily black and Latino. I was never really around white people, Asian people, anyone that was outside of that that black and Latino atmosphere. So it was it was really, really a culture shock for me because the customers that I was serving were primarily white and Asian. These were types of people that I had never really come across or interacted with. The interesting part of that role was that not only was I working on how to do marketing for these gift shops and to attract customers, but I was also spending time physically with customers and users in our gift shops to figure out what made them convert into users, what type of products did they want to see. And during that time, it really, really helped me just kind of open my eyes because a lot of times we tend to be in our boxes. You know, you, you might have somebody who comes from a all white neighborhood that ends up going to, say, a Stanford and it's, you know, predominantly white and then goes to a startup that's predominantly white. And you kind of live inside this bubble. And for me, you know, my first you know, marketing job really allowed me to kind of step outside of my comfort zone and be around people that were completely different than me, um, which was awesome. And number two, I actually ended up homeless when I was 17. And during that time, I think I learned more about humans than I've ever I've ever had in my entire life. I've been lucky to see the highs of the highs, but really seeing the lows of the lows and really getting down to the core of what makes people tick, especially when they're in the most need. That really goes into marketing now because a lot of times when we think about users, we focus too much on the things that they don't really care about. I always stress about, you know, really find, finding out the desired outcome of your users. What do they really want? What do they really need? Um, I think my time being homeless and being around people really gave me an insight into needs of people. You know, we have a lot of wants, but the true needs of people, and that correlates when, when you're building and marketing a product as well. That's really super interesting. I mean, I've, I've always said that the entire sales process is still 80% driven by emotion. 20% by the process, by the, you know, the actual process of buying something. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether that's, uh, whether that's B2C or B2B. It doesn't matter whether that's, uh, you know, a knee-jerk purchase in a retail store or whether it's a six-month sales cycle where you're buying $100,000 worth of software to do something for your company. You're not going to make that purchase unless you're emotionally connected to it in some way, shape, or form. It's why some people only buy Nike shoes. It's why some right. people, you know, only use Tide in their washing machine, right? They, how do we take this and 
think about it from a data perspective and also think about it from the perspective of like now everybody's got a smartphone in their hands all the time. So I've got this very personal device. So there's already that emotional connection. How do we deal with that from a, from a data-driven standpoint and still keep that emotional intelligence? I think number one, you want to, like I said before, use data as an ability to know your customer and use that data to really figure out what are the appropriate marketing channels for your customers, right? For instance, when you look at data, one of the things that we looked at with growth hackers, for instance, we were trying to figure out what were the appropriate marketing channels where we could really, really reach our audience. Um, we saw through data, overwhelmingly, we had such a strong funnel through Twitter, right? And we realized that there was a huge growth hacking audience on Twitter. And so we use that data to really surface that marketing channel for us. And we really, really optimize that marketing channel for ourselves. That also allows you to like really personalize your campaigns and tactics towards your users. When you're looking at data, the more and more personalized and customized that you can be, the language you know what to use to, to really, really engage with your users and, and really grab their attention and, and compel action. Um, and it also goes into like conversion rate optimization as well. I think there's like some statistic, like I'm forgetting it now, like 90% of purchasing decisions are based on like emotional impulses. There needs to be like a strong understanding of like consumer psychology, um, how they, they interact with your website. And, you know, that's not as just as simple as looking at Google Analytics. You use tools like Google Analytics and, and different data sets about your website or your app. Again, like I said, to help bolster your emotional intelligence and figure out the things that are really inspiring your users to take action. Yeah, your IQ and the EQ. So with you being on the founding team there at Growth Hackers, you've seen some pretty epic growth hacks from the people in the community, right? What are maybe a couple of your like ones that stand out the most that were just like, wow, this is so completely genius that maybe any company or anybody listening could maybe a, a utilize something around that? One of the biggest issues when it comes to growth hacking to me is this, this thinking that there's this one-size-fits-all growth hacks that work for everyone. Really, there isn't one growth hack that I've seen that exists that works for everyone. Um, you've seen like very, very smart things, but I know like growth hacks that I've done that maybe I can talk about, sure but thing. in terms Absolutely. of like the community, yeah. I think one of the, the, the smartest growth hacks that we did with growth hackers kind of going back to Twitter, right? We figured that a lot of our, you know, a good amount of our traffic was coming from Twitter and how we were going to optimize that. And we realized that well, I realized that Twitter allows you essentially now you see a lot of people do this, but we realized that there were tools and ways for us to be able to really, really target our users on Twitter that were using words like growth hacking, that were using startup marketing, product market fit, different things like that. And we started targeting those people. We were doing over a thousand interactions with people a day on Twitter to grow our user base and to grow our engagement. And what we use is uh, automated tweets through Buffer as well to push out our content constantly because we realize that at any given moment, most people aren't on Twitter, 
right? And so if you're pushing out content every 10 to 15 minutes, a lot of people aren't going to see most of that. So it won't really come off spammy to them. We were driving over 70% of our traffic to grow. These are hundreds of thousands of monthly active users through Twitter, through automated engagement through Twitter, through physical, like actual engagement through Twitter, through automated tweets, the collection of emails via Twitter. And it was really, really amazing for us that we were able to like build a, you know, a sustainable community and a business off the back of another social media channel. We didn't use, you know, Facebook marketing. We didn't use any paid marketing. Um, most of our growth hacking came right through Twitter itself. If I can take you to an old school one, I've, I've got one, Travis, that I did a long time ago. You know those remote control cars, the ones that are powered by real gas um, and they're incredibly expensive? Okay. I wanted to get some really important decision makers to come to my booth at a trade show. So I sent out 50 of those to 50 really targeted accounts, but I didn't put the remote control for the car in the box. I gave them a guilt-edged invitation to say, if you want the remote control, you have to come to our booth and book an appointment with us. <laughs> and uh, I got over 40 qualified appointments uh, with the exact people I wanted to get in front of us. And we set the booth up like a meeting room and we closed a huge amount of deals. And uh, it was a ridiculous amount of money we spent. These were not cheap remote control cars. Oh, that's <laughs> but, great. Yeah. Uh, it worked beautifully. Yeah. One of the best growth hacks that I've done personally was during my time at Sticker Mule. This plays into EQ, right? And we realized that, you know, we had so many customers from all around the world. The problem was, you know, we're American and none of our units of, uh, of measurement was in metric, the, okay. in the metric system. And so what we did was we made personalized landing pages for people coming from Europe and other countries. And we saw our conversion rate like shoot up significantly because they didn't realize what was the size of something because, you know, they were seeing our units of measurement. And by just making that change to the landing page, by converting that for people to coming from other countries, that really, really bolstered um, our international business for Sticker Mill. It was like one of the best things that we, we, we ever did. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's Let me ask you this then, because you were talking about social media automation. You were talking about using Twitter very effectively. Is that what the genesis of Growth Pup was? Is that how you sort of you came across that project? Yeah. So the one thing I've realized about Twitter is that, you know, there's a, like Twitter is a lot more lenient about the things that you can do to kind of grow your audience. You know, you can do mass targeted following and things like that to really start building that audience. But unfortunately, with Instagram, there's so many limitations. Like you can only follow 7,500 people. You know, you can only do so many actions per hour. It's a very, very complicated process. And, you know, I have my marketing firm, Millicent's, and I was able to grow a pretty large, you know, following. I think like I'm approaching like half a million people across all platforms on social media. And, you know, a lot of people will come to my marketing firm and say, hey, how do I grow my brand, my personal brand or my company's brand? And it was a lot of like just manual labor where we had to charge people thousands of dollars a month. And you can only find 
you know, so many clients that are willing to pay that much to grow their social media accounts. And so I was like, there has to be an easier way to do this, to automate this process and to make it cheap. Um, Because a lot of people really can't figure out Instagram. And we wanted to get people real followers, real engagement, um, and real like click throughs to their website and real likes and real comments. And so that's how Growth Pup came about is really trying to automate a great process and optimize the process for people to really grow a strong audience on Instagram. I've used it myself. I'm over 100K followers on Instagram now with very, very strong engagement. Um, and so, yeah, something that I was like a little bit of a passion project. And now it's like 80% growth month over month. It's insane. It's, it's only been six months now. That's fantastic. Listen, Everett, uh, first of all, I have to give you kudos uh, for the way that you sidestepped being put on the spot earlier. That's very politician-like of you. And if you ever you know, think, of a, think of a career in politics, you know, that's, that's maybe a good thing for you. Um, I actually do have an interest in, in local politics one day. So oh, we'll see. Let's see. Maybe one day, uh, maybe we're talking to a future world leader that actually has some emotional intelligence. That would be an amazing thing. That um, would be great. You know, we, we have to bring everything to an end because uh, unfortunately we've run out of time but this has been absolutely amazing um, outstanding being able to uh, talk with you today and thank you so much for being on VB Engage yeah thank you so much guys yeah. let's do it again someday we really appreciate it we'll try it. We'll, next time we'll try to get you on though without rescheduling four or five times <laughs> <laughs> that would be great we really appreciate it Thank you so much, Everett, for jumping on with us. That was a great, great call. This is episode 48. We had Everett Taylor here on this episode last week. We had John Rampton on. That was an amazing episode as well when we talked about uh, you know how to create content, how he's used content to actually help him as an entrepreneur. Phenomenal stuff. Next week on episode 49, we have John Miller with us of uh, Marketo fame. He was one of the co-founders there and also has... Uh, founded Engageo. We talk a lot about marketing automation, account-based marketing next week. So if you are trying to get more sales and be more precise in your targeting and selling, you're going to want to tune in next week. You're going to want to tune in every week. I mean, seriously, we are dropping serious knowledge every single week. And if you do love the show, please be kind and feel free to leave a review or a rating on your favorite podcast network. We're on pretty much all of them at this point. So thank you for that. And uh, for episode 48, for Travis Wright, goodbye. Uh, For Stuart Rogers, it's Tambiet. We'll see you guys next week.